chapter 17. I've been reading and thinking about this prayer of Christ for uh, a number of days now, and uh, I thought I would begin a series of messages on this prayer. Uh, It's such a tremendous portion of Scripture that, uh, of course, you enter into trying to deal with something like this with, uh, I guess you would say, fear and trembling because it's uh, one of those sections that you know contains so much and uh, will be so wonderful if we could get a hold of it and yet you know, you sense your inadequacy in trying to share uh, from, from a section like this, but nevertheless, this is what I've been thinking about, so this is what I hope to do here in the next few times that I speak. Uh, this has been called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ, and I think that's a pretty good title. Really, uh, you know, the context was uh, the time that he had with his disciples there in the upper room. Uh, that uh, section of time where they had the Last Supper together and he taught them an incredible amount of things. The, the, the context, let's, let, we'll just get that, just skip back to uh, chapter 13 and verse 1 because this is where this discourse and interchange with his disciples, the Twelve, uh, began <clears throat> and uh, just to get a little feel for that time. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then they have their supper together, and he teaches them a lot of things in these next chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, And then we come to this prayer in 17. Now, what I plan to do is read the prayer to you this evening. It's 26 verses. It takes two or three minutes. And I'm confident that it will be the best part of this message. (laughs) I know it will be the most scriptural. Uh, And if God will just bring a few thoughts to us as we read through here. It will be wonderful for us. Let me just tell you the title of this message because I think it will show you where I'm going and maybe give you a little clue as to what to look for as we read through this section. The title is It's All About Relationships. It's All About Relationships. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, 
that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you gave me, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and have guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as, as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, I plan each time I 
share on this to read that whole section and I hope that you will read it over and over there's uh, things that I think may seem fairly plain when you read it the first time and then as you read it more you see this this is way deeper than I thought this is much more profound than I see here on the surface it is an incredible prayer and again I say that it's all about relationships you see life is about relationships interactions knowing others caring for others relating to others and to God and that's what this prayer is about sin wrecks relationships ultimately sin will bring a person to a place where there are no good relationships I'm speaking about hell hell is separation from God and from any good relationship with anyone Christ came to restore relationships first of all between God and people he came to make us fit for fellowship with God and with that comes a restoration of relationships with other people now I'm just giving some thoughts here some kind of introductory thoughts and one of them that I think is important is that we must see that relationships are part of the eternal order of reality that's important it's not just something down on this level that we've thought up you know it'd be good to have good relationships relationships are part of the eternal order of reality the teaching of the Bible is that there have always has always been personal interaction between the persons of the Godhead the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and you see a little of that coming out here in verse uh, 5 now father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the foundation before the world was the glory that I had with you before the world was and then you see it again in uh, verse 24 the latter part of verse 24 where he says for you love me before the foundation of the world before there was any creation you see there were, were relationships between the father and the son and the Holy Spirit so relationships are part of the eternal order of things <clears throat> and I think that this is vitally important because it shows again that relationships are not a man created thing and if they were you see they'd be an illusion because they wouldn't be part of the eternal order of things it's just something we thought up and there's no basis for them no foundation for them it would be a futile endeavor to think that we could have true relationships they are part you see they're part of the very nature of God and therefore intrinsic to all of life and all of reality 
Now, I think the best way to see this is by way of contrast. If you have a belief system in which all ultimately is one, such as pantheism, then relationships are an illusion. You have to think here a little bit. This is a little philosophical, not too much. If all is one, then there are no relationships. There's nowhere to have a relationship. And so what we think are relationships are simply an illusion. And this is what some forms of Hinduism teach. Life is an illusion. Relationships are an illusion. Why? Because all is one, you see. Uh, If all is one, there are no relationships. Now, I'm going to give away my age here a little bit because I'm going to quote from a golden oldie. And only the golden oldies in the, in the audience are going to know this song. But there was a group by the strange name of Three Dog Night that uh, had it right in one of their songs. And the first line was, One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Remember that one, Terry? <laughs> Always look over there. So he's... <laughs> One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Now, they were not thinking very philosophically when they made that statement, but what they said is right. Ultimately, oneness means total aloneness. There's no place for relationships, you see, with oneness. No love, no communication, no relating to others because there are no others. If one is all, then there is no final meaning or purpose to individuals, so there can be no relationships. I'm just kind of trying to get the point home here, you see. All relationships in that type of a belief system are a temporary illusion which will soon go back into the undifferentiated oneness of whatever is ultimate reality. It's oneness, no relationships there. So that's one extreme. But I want you to think for a moment on the other extreme. What if all is diversity? Instead of all being one, what if all is diversity? There are billions upon billions of individual things, including billions of particular things we call people, with no underlying unity. Nothing that can give any ultimate meaning to interaction because individu- uh, between individual things. Nothing that gives any unity to individual, the interaction of individual things, and particularly in individual people. Well, that is the implication of ev- evolutionary thinking. Molecules exist by chance. They interact by chance producing people by chance, who live and die by chance, and therefore there is no basis for meaningful relationships. Love and communication, again, are illusions in such a system because they're just something we've made up. 
they're, they're not based in ultimate reality. Ultimate reality in that system is total diversity, which has come about by chance. Uh, they're just something we produced in our brain with no foundation. I'm talking about relationships here. They're something we've conjured up in our brain with no foundation in ultimate reality. Well, that's two extremes, but praise God. Praise the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have existed forever. Their relationships are real and they reflect ultimate reality because that's what was there before anything else was, were relationships between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're an integral part of what always has been. There was communication and love between the persons of the Trinity before time ever existed. In fact, existence is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. Existence is all about relationships because God himself is a tri-unity, a oneness that yet maintains individuality. It's incredible what we're talking about when we're talking about the Trinity. It's a glorious, incomprehensible mystery, but it is absolutely necessary to make sense out of life. Oneness that yet maintains individuality. Unity in diversity. Well, that was a brief, somewhat philosophical, hopefully theological, introduction to this prayer of Jesus to his Father. Now, if I was to outline the prayer, I would do it something like this. Verses 1 through 5, the relationship of the Father and the Son. Or I like to put the Son here because he's the one doing the praying. The relationship of the Son and the Father. Verses 6 through 19, the relationship of the Son and the Father to his initial disciples, that is, the twelve disciples, the apostles normally we call them. That's 6 through 19. And then verses 20 through 26, the relationship of the Son and the Father to all believers from then on into eternity, what we usually call the church. So you have the the first five verses, the relationship of the Son and the Father, and the next verses from 6 to 19, the relationship of the Son and the Father to those initial disciples, and then 20 through 26, the relationship of the Son and the Father to all believers throughout all time on right on into eternity. So I want to then try to at least begin this evening to share some thoughts from this first section related to the Son and the Father. As we said before, this took place in the upper room. Jesus had been discoursing, communing with his disciples. But in this prayer, he turns from that to commune with his Father. He knows that the hour had come for his departure from the earth. His crucifixion, when he says the hour has come, Why don't we read the first five verses again just to get that section in our mind. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, 
the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you, have, as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give e- eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, he says, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. And when he says that, I think he's thinking of more than just the crucifixion, because he's talking about him being glorified. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. I think he's talking about the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension back to his Father's presence, what he had left to come to earth to do the will of God. Now, if you would read back through John, you would know that there's been a number of times in the Gospel account where he told his hearers that his hour had not yet come. But here, at this point, he says, it's here. The hour is here. But I think that really when he prayed this prayer, he was thinking in a grander scope than even just his time here on earth. Because when he said the hour has come, I think he's talking about the fact that this was the hour that had been planned from eternity. This is the time that all eternity had been looking forward to. This is the time that God had promised way back there in the garden. When man fell, this is the time when the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. Now at last, you see, it was planned in eternity. It was worked out through time. And now at last, all of those bloody sacrifices of animals that had taken place for centuries, all that was going to be brought to an end. And the true Lamb of God would finally accomplish the work of atonement. This is the hour. Father, the hour has come. Again, it's the hour that was planned in eternity. eternity, And he says, glorify thy Son. Now, when we think about this idea of glorifying or glory, it can mean to praise or to honor. But I think in this context... It means more than that. It means primarily to clothe with splendor, wrap with majesty. You see that, and the reason I say that is because of verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The splendor, the majesty... Uh, the the wonder that was there with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity, he says, it's the hour has come for that to be brought about again. Jesus is saying 
glorify me by carrying me through the cross, the grave, and the glorious completion of the work which you sent me to do, and bring me again to the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the world. But you see, I think he's thinking in terms of the fact that the glory that he's going to be brought to is, is even greater than what it was before in eternity. Why do I say that? Uh, well, I say that because of what he has done, you see, what he's accomplished. Think of this. The very event that was the utmost shame and humiliation for for him here on earth, that event is the thing that people will praise him throughout, throughout eternity for, the fact that he died for sinners, that he bore their sins. So he's saying, bring me through this, Father, and back to thy right hand, where I shall have a name that's above every name. There weren't any other names prior to eternity. Now there's a lot of them. But none like Jesus. Because no one's done what Jesus has done. So he's saying, bring me back to that glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. But it's going to be so much greater glory now because of what you sent me to do and what I've done. Glorify thy Son. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify you. What's he saying there? He's saying, do this that I might bring fresh glory, new and greater glory to you. Bring me through this crucifixion the resurrection, the ascension, setting me again at your right hand, that I might bring greater glory to you. A fresh glory to your holiness, a fresh glory to your justice, a fresh glory to your mercy, a, a fresh glory to your love and to your faithfulness in keeping your word new and greater glory to you by bringing many redeemed souls to heaven. Father, glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. Let me read J.C. Ryle here. The glory of God and His attributes is the grand end of all creation and of all God's arrangements and providences. Nothing brings such glory to God as the completion of the redeeming work of Christ, his death, his resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Our Lord seems to me to ask that his death may at once take place, that he through death may be taken up to glory, and that thus the justice, the holiness, the mercy, and the faithfulness of the Father may be glorified and exhibited to all creation 
and many souls be saved and glorify the divine wisdom and power. So you have this relationship of glorifying one another. It's about relationships, you see. Father, glorify your your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, ultimately, the great issue is always the glory of God. Jesus' desire here to be glorified, he desires to be glorified so that he might glorify God. Our Lord's great desire throughout his life on earth was the glory of the Father. He lived for this, and here in this prayer, he's praying for it. He's praying that God would be glorified. Glorify me that I might glorify you. The essence of sin is that we do not glorify God. That's, I mean, you can talk about all your particular sins, but when it comes right down to the bottom line of what sin is all about, sin is about this, not glorifying God. Conversely, the essence of salvation is being brought into a relationship with God in which we do glorify God. That's what it's all about. You move from a position, a relationship where you do not glorify God, to a relationship where you do glorify God. This is what God's intention was in salvation. I mean, it's yeah, it's to keep us out of hell. It's to save us from our sin. It's all these things that we normally talk about. But ultimately, it's this, that we would glorify God. So, again, we're talking about relationships here. Now, look at this next dynamic of relationship. The Father has given the Son authority over all humanity. This verse 2. Even as you gave him, that is, the Father gave the Son, authority over all flesh or all mankind or all humanity, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. The Father has given the Son authority over all humanity. The Son is then able to give eternal life to those that were given to him by the Father. Again, relationships, incredible uh, dynamics here related to the relationships we're talking about. The Son gives eternal life to those who are given to him by the Father. So the plan of salvation took place in eternity past. God gave authority to Christ and he gave that was over all mankind and of that all mankind he gave some to the son and he gave him this work the work was to save those people before time was 
the Father determined to give the Son authority over all mankind and gave certain of mankind to the Son so that he might give them eternal life. It's, a, it's right there in the verse. It's a, it, you know, it's one of those things that you can read over so quick, but it's an incredible statement. You gave him authority. The Father gave the Son authority over all flesh, that to all whom you gave him, he might give eternal life. He came, Jesus came to earth on a mission to accomplish a work, to seek and to save that which was lost, to give his life a ransom for many, to give those given to him eternal life. He came to give those who had been given to him eternal life. And all of that, why Why was all of that done? That God might be glorified. So what is eternal life? Well, we have that in the next verse. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's knowing God. It's knowing the only true God. Not just knowing about Him, you see, but having a what? A relationship. It's having a relationship with Him and knowing Jesus Christ, whom He sent. Knowing God, knowing the Son. You can't truly know one without the other. You can't know God without knowing Christ. You can't know Christ without knowing God. Eternal life is to have a right knowledge of God and his Christ, His Son. To have eternal life, then, is to know God. Much better question than to ask a person, are you a Christian, is to ask them, do you know God? Because if you're a Christian, you know God. The reason I say it's a better question is because most people in America at least it has been in the past, will say yes to that first question, are you a Christian? But if you get down to it and ask them now, do you know God? Which is the same question. You might get a different answer. So eternal life is having a right knowledge of God and His Son. It's knowing the Lord. And this includes fellowship with Him. It includes trust in Him. And as we are emphasizing here tonight, having a relationship with Him through Christ. Another way of looking at this would be to just say it this way. Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as some kind of a thing you get but a personal knowledge of the everlasting one. See, eternal life is a personal knowledge of the everlasting 
one, the true and living God, and having his life in us. There's a writer named Henry Scroggle, and he put it this way. He spoke about the life of God in the soul of man. That's what we're talking about here, you see. If you, if you have eternal life, you, you have it because you have the life of God, the everlasting one, in your life, in your soul. The life of God in the soul of man. There is no one other than Jesus Christ who can give you that life we're talking about here. He's been given authority over all flesh that to all whom the Father had given him he may give eternal life. He's the only one that can do it. Eternal life is a gift from God but more than that it is the gift of God. The gift of God himself, giving himself to you in the person of his Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. God gives eternal life by giving himself. Those who have eternal life have it because of their vital union with him who is life. John said this earlier, and I think it fits in well into this section that we're looking at. In John 5:26, he says, "For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Only the Father has life in himself, but flowing from that in, on an eternal basis and co-equal with the Father is the Son who has life in himself. And if you're going to have any life, we're talking about eternal life, you're going to have to have the life of God in your soul. That's, it's not something you get apart from God, you see. That's the point I'm trying to make. You don't get eternal life apart from God. This is eternal life. That they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So, let's just kind of sum up here a little bit. Christ was sent by God, given authority over all mankind, and given a, given a people to give eternal life to through his death. Why? To make them fit for a relationship with God. Fit for a relationship with God and in a relationship that will last forever. That's eternal life, you see. You start that relationship right now. You have eternal life. It goes on forever. Why? All for the glory of God. That's what it all comes back to. Brought into a relationship with God that you might glorify God forever. Well, let me uh, close here with a section from Lloyd-Jones. You see, our desire should be in accord with Christ's desire. We're being conformed to his image. And what is Christ's desire? He tells you right here in the first uh, 
verse of this this uh, prayer. His desire, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. That's Christ's desire, that the Father would be glorified. And if you're going to be Christ-like, that's going to be your desire too, that God might be glorified. Well, Lloyd-Jones says this at the end of a chapter related to the glory of God in the plan of salvation. He says, We see thus at the very beginning of this prayer that the primary object of this great and wondrous gospel is to display the glory of God. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify Thee. And he asks this question. How much time do you spend in contemplating this glory? in looking at it. Oh, let us study it. Let us forget ourselves and our moods and our states and our feelings and our desires and stand back for a moment and meditate upon it. Let us contemplate the plan and the scheme of salvation and feel ourselves lost in wonder, love, and praise. If you're a Christian here tonight, it's because God in eternity picked you out, set his love upon you, sent his son, gave him authority over all mankind, and then gave him some of mankind, if you're a Christian, that was you, gave him some of mankind, and then Christ gave them eternal life. And he did that through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And why? For the glory of God. So I'll end by just saying, if you would take some time this week to read <clears throat> this chapter, which is this prayer, read it over, read it over, read it over. I think you'll get uh, some help and see things that I won't be able to share. Uh, in this incredible prayer. It was said of Christ that never man spoke the way this man spoke. I think it is even more true. Never a man prayed the way this man prayed. So read the prayer. There's there's nothing like it anywhere. Uh, Read it. And it'll... It'll, it'll profit you. This Lloyd-Jones says, contemplate the glory of God. It's right here in this prayer. So I invite your, your attention to be given to this wonderful portion of Scripture. And we'll, we'll look, look at it again next time, Lord willing. Well, Even have a song we could close with. Haven't had Jill up here yet. One, what was it? One eighty-six in the white.